Let's, uh, let's go to him in prayer as we begin. Father, as we're thinking about um, just even that truth, I was thinking about the prayer that, that uh, your son instructed us in, that um, hallowed be your name. Lord, we want to see your name revered, uh, and we know that that starts in our hearts, where we understand who you are through your word, your spirit illumines um, you to us in the knowledge of, of God, and we bow before you, um, we delight in you, and we desire to reflect you, and it starts with us, it permeates out into our uh, spheres of influence, whether that's family or friendships in the church, and permeates out within our church where we hallow your name, and, and Lord, we long to see that uh, happening in the earth. You've promised that your glory is going to fill the earth like the water covers the sea, and we long for that. We're in a nation in turmoil right now, and a lot of men clamoring for power and uh, blind to the truth, so we pray that um, you would use us here in our community, and as you raise up folks from within us uh, to go out to the nations for the sake of Christ the King, and uh, you would save your people, and you would come um, to earth to reign. And so we, we look forward to that. May tonight be one more step in that direction as we uh, try to edify each other, not just in the teaching time, but afterwards. We've already done that before. And um, so, Lord, we just we thank you. Uh, thank you for the singing. Thank you just for the fellowship. And uh, we look to you now to accomplish what you, you desire to accomplish. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, it is hard to believe that tonight is actually our last night in the book of Ephesians this semester. Isn't that wild? Uh, after tonight, we're, we're at a good stopping point in, in the letter. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop. And then next week, uh, our brother Rich is going to teach the final our final boundless gathering while we're all here. We're going to keep meeting over the break, but uh, while we're all here, Rich is going to bring the word and shepherd us on into the Thanksgiving and Christmas break. So that'll be exciting. Don't want to miss that. So with this being the last uh, sermon of the semester, I was reflecting on all that I've learned about the Christian life, uh, even over these last few months of studying this letter. And I'm, I'm so thankful that God inspired Paul to write Ephesians, because uh, it's given us so much practical application, um, so much to consider in the way that we live our lives. And any time that we see with clarity into Scripture, into Christ's character that He calls us to imitate, uh, the Lord upends us. Um, he convicts us. He exposes us. And I've been talking with a number of you, and we've... <laughs> We've been sort of resonating on this theme of, of as we've been working through these commands, it's just exposing. And we've really, we've, we've felt what the author of Hebrews says. Um, he puts it like this. He says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, we definitely felt that. I felt that, um, even as we've, Worked through these these chapters, and I've I've spoken to many of you who experienced this this very conviction, and 
um, you felt naked, exposed before the Lord as we've looked at his instructions in, in the back half of Ephesians. And what I want to do, just as we're, we're easing into this last command, is I just want to encourage you in that. Uh, this is necessary. Exposure is always the first step to growth. We have to go through it. It's painful. Um, but this is how it has to be if we're going to grow. If we're going to be like Christ. Because in Christ, we're, we're works in progress. So we have to be humbled by that. So I, I just want to highlight, just by way of introduction, just some of the good things that are happening in that exposure. If you're a pretender in Christ, so you kind of, you're sort of faking it, you're just kind of here, you maybe you've grown up in it, your relationship with Christ isn't really real, and you're, you're getting exposed in this way, this is, Christ is exposing you to the true standard of himself. And if that's you, you realize that you're found wanting. You realize that compared to him, you actually have zero true righteousness. And we've all been there, if you're a believer, and that's unsettling because functionally we thought we were pretty good folks. Thought we were all right. Especially when we look around, we compare ourselves to other people. But when we stand next to the glory of Christ and what he's called us to, we're shattered. But we've got to see how good this is, okay? Typically we don't talk about shattering as a good thing, but it is. The Lord is exposing you to your true need for him. He's exposing you to how bankrupt his word says that you really are. That's resonating with you now, when maybe it wasn't before. And now you're really seeing it. And the wonderful news about this is that he meets you right there in that moment, having already provided all of the righteousness you need in Christ. And the Lord doesn't call you to clean yourself up. He simply calls you to trust in Christ and to simply receive the forgiveness and righteousness that He's earned for you, on your behalf, to let Him love you fully in Christ, in spite of you. And that's the the beautiful truth, the good news of the Gospel. He justifies the ungodly, Paul says in Romans 4. He justifies those who don't work for it, who simply come to Him naked, exposed, and empty-handed. So that's you, if you're the pretender, uh, this is sweet news for you. Uh, seeing this, the standard of what the Lord's called us to in the church. And for the believer, it leads us to greater humility, doesn't it? It, it puts us on our face. It, it shows us how far we have to go, how high the calling is, and it, it thoroughly humbles us. It leads us to greater levels of repentance that we've never known. It leads us to a more profound sense of our need to depend on Christ. It leads us to confess our sins that we didn't see before. And most importantly, it leads us to a renewed sense of His mercy and a greater appreciation of His love. And as we're humbled, it also gives us benchmarks to strive for in the power of the Spirit. So we're not, we're not defeated. We have the Spirit, and He helps us to make progress in the Christian life. His, his word, like in the back half of Ephesians, shows us how we can, we can make progress in the faith. And it encourages us that this progress is actually attainable. We can grow in real righteousness and holiness. We can grow this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's, what his, that's his intention for us. And tonight, uh, Paul's really going to tie up this list of commands that we've been working through over the last several weeks. He's going to tie them up as he, as he gives us really one final and climactic contrast. So it's kind of like one idea, and he, he does it in a contrast. 
So let's look in verse 18. Actually, we'll pick it up from verse 15 because that's kind of where we, what we were, this is sort of part two of last week. So he says, look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's where we're picking up this week. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's our text. That's where we're headed. And, and it's, it's really all about pursuing the fullness of God. So that's, that's what I'm calling this. It's, it's the, the classic text about being filled with the Spirit. So we're going to unpack that tonight. But I'm, I'm just titling this message, Pursuing the Fullness of God. And hopefully that'll make sense to you as we work through this, this text. And really, starting in verse 18, there's this, this contrast that Paul gives us. And there's a negative side to it and a positive side. So it's just it's one kind of big, big point in that the emphasis falls on being filled with the Spirit. So outlines real simple. Um, the negative. Don't get drunk. Okay? Don't get drunk. <laughs> so we'll hit the we'll hit the positive in a minute. Don't don't get drunk, Paul says. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh, pretty straightforward. Next point, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> as we're moving along in this text, you may have even felt this when we read it. Uh, as we get to this command, it feels a little bit out of place, right? Why does Paul all of a sudden bring up alcohol in the midst of a bunch of general, sort of generic commands about how we live our lives? You notice that? So, verse 15 look carefully at how you live. That's pretty broad, right? Uh, make the best use of the time, verse 16, pretty broad. Don't be foolish, verse 17, pretty broad. Understand God's will, very broad. Don't get drunk. Um, well, it would help us to know that there's a reason for this. Okay, There's a flow of thought in, in Paul's letters, as we know, as the Spirit's inspiring him. And it would help us to know our first clue that this all goes together is that grammatically, this paragraph of command, starting in verse 15, that we looked at even, even last week, that paragraph is connected to the last paragraph, the, the former paragraph, the paragraph that preceded it. And do you remember what that paragraph was about? Paul's concern was that we're sexually pure in that previous paragraph. So we spent a couple weeks on that, looking at those commands. And... He doesn't want us to be sexually immoral. He doesn't want us to be characterized by lust and greed that leads to that sexual immorality. And that's, that's a pretty specific concern, too. Make sense? So, like, pretty focused. Don't lust. Like, don't, don't be about that. Be pure. Walk in the light. And then we have another specific command about drunkenness. And things really start to come into focus for us when we realize that, that both, that not, the paragraphs are connected, they go together, grammatically, and that both sexual immorality and drunkenness went together in the Roman culture at large, so the culture he was writing to, 
and, and really for this context, the worship practices of the Roman culture. Temples like the the massive temple of Artemis that was in the city of, of Ephesus, temples like that had prostitutes It's part of worship. And worship would sometimes be accompanied with these like drunken orgies. Various festivals that were characterized by indulgence. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, pretty crazy scene. And that's really standing, I think, in the background of this, of this text. So it's kind of got a worship background, a corporate worship background, if you can think about it that way. And we can see this connection between sexual immorality and drunkenness in other places in Scripture, uh, in the New Testament, outside of Ephesians. Peter also condemns this, the false worship that's characterized by lust and drunkenness over in 1 Peter. So go ahead and just turn over there real quick. Kind of build this out for you guys. 1 Peter 4. And notice what he says here, this connection. See if you can see the connection. He says, for the time, 1 Peter 4, verse 3. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So Gentiles are unbelievers in this case. So time is past, for it suffices for what Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. See that? With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So do you see the connections Peter's making here? He connects sexual morality, so he uses the term sensuality, passions, orgies, with drunkenness. And he says drunkenness here and drinking parties. And he calls both of them, the end, what? Lawless idolatry. Did you hear the worship language there? All this idolatry is false worship. The worship of an idol means you're worshiping a false god. So that's a, another clear example, I think, of this, of this background where these things were connected. And even in our day, um, people are engaged in idolatry when they're enslaved to lust and alcohol. That's the reality. It's, a false, it's false worship. It's operative there. They worship the god of pleasure and indulgence. And while we're here in 1 Peter, before we go back to Ephesians, I just want you to look at what else he says here in this text, other than just connecting these things. He says that unbelievers are actually surprised when we don't participate in the flood of debauchery, he says. Indulging in this form of pleasure is normal to an unbeliever. Even if it's maybe a little more sanitized than like drunken orgies, okay? It's still normative, and it's what they want to do in their worship. It's what we wanted to do before we were believers. And now Peter says that that the unbelievers are going to be shocked when we don't participate in those things. And that shock, he says, will quickly turn to scorn. They're going to mock us. They're going to slander us. They're going to malign us for not participating in those same acts of debauchery. They're going to try to make life more difficult for us. Now... This happens at Christian universities, doesn't it? It may even happen among your Christian friends. 
If you refuse participating in the LU party culture, or in certain forms of sinful entertainment, or certain expressions of lustful behavior in your dating relationship, you'll likely be called what? Shout it out. Nice. Homeschool. Wasn't thinking, wasn't anticipating that one. <laughs> nice. My wife was homeschooled, so I can laugh at that. What's that? Old fashioned, okay. Legalistic, that's yeah, that's that's kind of where I was what I was thinking. Not homeschooled. This, that's, that's your chance, guys, to exercise uh, that, that put up with you command. You know, just all you homeschoolers, just put up with that. Put up with whoever said that. Okay? Just put up with it. Let it roll off. Um, well, according to this text, yes, they, they will likely, in this, or I guess I should say in this context, they'll likely call you legalistic, holier than thou. At least that's kind of what I got when I was at Liberty. Um, or, you know, just any, anything else, the judgmental. And it's, that's all because you refuse to participate. But what I want you to see, in, according to this text, according to Peter, this actually says more, more about your so-called Christian friends than you. According to this text, they are acting like unbelievers and very well may be. It do, this text doesn't call you legalistic. The reality is that, that we don't participate in these things because we recognize that these things are idolatrous. And idolatry leads to destruction. So notice back in Ephesians 5 that Paul tells us, if you flip back to Ephesians 5, um, Paul tells us that, that this drunkenness leads to debauchery or is debauchery. Uh, look what he says there. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's recklessness. It leads to that. What he's saying is that drunkenness, and by extension, really any form of of excess, uh, it leads to an increasingly disordered life, a life that lacks self-control, a life that wastes resources to gratify your sinful desires, and all of this leads to ruin or destruction. And it's the opposite of being wise and and taking advantage of every opportunity that we saw last week. It's what this kind of false worship actually leads to. And the Bible is super clear about that. Trust in your idols, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to become like them and then you're going to become destroyed. But we, as God's people, we've been delivered from our idols, not because we're better than the unbeliever, because God's shown us mercy. He's delivered us and we don't want to go back to those things. We've not... any of you experienced that, slavery to sin, you, you know what that's like. And we don't want to go back. There's a better way. There's a more joy-filled way, and it's, it's the way of the new creation. So we'll, we'll talk about more, on, more of that in just a minute. But before we get there, I, just, I want to say that, just to clarify this command a bit, the Bible doesn't outright condemn all consumption of alcoholic beverages. You know that. In fact, you probably know that all too well. People probably flaunt that um, in your context, but... Jesus made wine in the John 2. He made wine to reveal his identity as the Messiah. And he made the good stuff. Like, he didn't skimp on it. Okay? 
In the Old Testament, the Lord commanded Israel to bring strong drink to certain festivals for certain celebrations. Jesus served wine at the first Lord's Supper as he transformed the Passover meal. And when Jesus returns, Isaiah says in Isaiah 25 that we will drink well-aged wine with him at the Messianic banquet. So I think that's layered in what that's saying in the sense that, that there will be a richness, a, a, a bountiful provision in, in the kingdom when Christ returns. But that's the, the imagery at the minimum that they use, well-aged wine. So the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol per se. Like nothing's inherently sinful, no like created thing is inherently sinful in and of itself. It, it's only in the abuse of that created thing. So in the drunkenness. So how should we think about this? terms of applying this command. Here are a few other just principled considerations for you guys, especially uh, if you go to LU. All right? Number one, don't violate the law. Okay? Underage drinking is a violation of the law. And the Lord wants us to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13, Titus 3. And then sort of by extension, um, if you kind of fare it out, this principle a little bit further, uh, drinking is a violation of Liberty Way, which you said you would voluntarily submit to when you became a student. It dishonors Christ when we're dishonest, and that's something that you do, that's something you are, when you say you won't do something, and then you do it anyway, undercover. And you're, you're rebellious in the sense that you're violating something, the, uh, an, an authority that you've agreed to, a designed authority structure in your life. So, don't violate the law. The Lord cares about that. He cares about his reputation in and through you and how careful you are to be obedient there. And next, don't overestimate your spiritual maturity. Man, I wish I could just keep saying this over and over on repeat to uh, your generation and mine. Don't overestimate your spiritual maturity in particular in this area. You may be free in Christ to drink in moderation. You know, if you're not an LU student and you're of age. Uh, but approach it carefully. I've just, I've, I've lived long enough at this point to see, have seen too many young people overestimate in pride their spiritual maturity in this area. And the telltale sign of your immaturity is when you flaunt your perceived liberty. Okay? You're flaunting it you're running around on social media or whatever you're doing, you're broadcasting that you're free in Christ and that you're drinking your drink, you just hold on yourself. You're, told, like you're not mature enough to handle that liberty. Um, and so just, just you, you can kind of know that. So for these kinds of, of proud and immature folks, alcohol will become an awful and addictive snare in their lives. And the scriptures warn against this all over the place. This is not some sort of thing I'm just sort of encouraging you guys in. The scriptures and Proverbs especially uh, warn about the dangers, the enticements of alcohol and drunkenness. So don't overestimate your spiritual maturity. And then third, be, just be aware of your motives um, as you're thinking about why it is you want to drink alcohol. Ask yourself questions like, why is this so compelling to me? Do I secretly want my own Christianized version of a good time or the, the party scene or the party culture? Like, do, do, we, do we sort of secretly 
like that and admire that and sort of want to recreate that on our terms and get as close to that as we can without actually stepping over the line, thinking that there's some sort of joy in that, that the Lord's forbidden us, right? Sounds an awful lot like Eve, kind of eye in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like is there something in there that maybe the Lord's holding out on me with? So, do you secretly want your own Christianized version of a good time or the party scene? Do you want to escape from pressure by taking the edge off with alcoholic beverage? Now, there is a proper motivation to drink because it's a created thing by God. So, the proper motivation would be to receive it as a good gift from God with thanksgiving and to enjoy it in moderation to the glory of God. 1 Timothy 4. Specifically, 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, he says that, that God's created everything. He's created things for our enjoyment, and we should receive it. It's not unholy in and of itself. People running around saying that things, things in themselves are unholy, that's going beyond what Scripture says. So, enjoy it as a, as a good gift from God in moderation to the glory of God. 1 Timothy 4. Again, if you're of age and not an LU student. <laughs> now, there's obviously more principles that we could think through here. Uh, in terms of just how to think about that, consideration for, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, obviously, as a pastoral staff, we don't drink. Um, just to be above reproach in that area. I think Timothy kind of had that same idea. So he was actually hurting. His stomach was, was affecting him uh, to the point because where he had, he had just taken sort of a total vow of abstinence in this area. Wasn't going to do it. I think probably because of abuses in Ephesus. And so he he'd kind of pulled out and Paul said, look, Timothy, you know, take some wine for the sake of your stomach. Like, don't fall prey to some of these sort of these things that I think Timothy was probably trying to be above, like overly above reproach, and then his health was suffering as a result. So Paul was saying, "Look, take some," you know. Uh, so I, I appreciate that, but I, it, I appreciate Timothy's heart in that of just wanting to, to to be above reproach in that area. So just gives you just gives you kind of a an, an awareness here. Just the command, negative command here is don't. Uh, don't be drunk. Don't get drunk with wine. Because it's debauchery. It's going to lead to bad things. And as people of the new creation, we shouldn't be characterized by this, by this base drunkenness that, that leads to debauchery. So what should, what should we be characterized by? Like, what's this alternative? Paul tells us in this final command. And here's where it, it climaxes. Um... <clears throat> In, in a way, it's one of the most fundamental commands to this entire back half of the book of Ephesians. And it really serves as a great conclusion to this section and a, and a transition to the next section of where we're going to be going. So next semester, we're going to pick it back up uh, in this text. So the positive side of this contrast is Paul just says, be filled by the Spirit. Or with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It could go either way um, in the translation. So look with me, if you would, in verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, there's a command with a lot sort of hanging off this command. A lot of other phrases that are dependent on this command. So, as, as beautiful, really, as this command is, in its context, as we're going to see, uh, there's been quite a bit of misunderstanding 
uh, and misinterpretation of this of this verse in the church. So I just want to take a take a minute, kind of clear the deck uh, to explain what Paul's not saying here before we build out what I think he's actually commanding us to do here. All right. So what are some wrong interpretations of, of spirit filling? Wrong interpretations of this of this command. Well, it's, he's not referring to the indwelling of the Spirit. So, I'm just calling it the spiritual indwelling. He's not, he's not referring to that here when he's calling us to be filled with the Spirit. He's not commanding for us to be indwelt with the Spirit like we, like we are in conversion. We're already indwelt with the Spirit. We already have possessed the Spirit as a gift uh, from God. And he made this point very clearly already in the book. Um, multiple examples of this, but if you, if you go back to Ephesians 1.13, you'll see it with, with crystal clarity. He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, at that moment you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right? So, sealed. He came to you. He sealed you. He marked you out as His own. He was given to you as a gift and all of the benefits that come with the Holy Spirit. And that's really the, the thing that's mo- like just firing up Paul's praise in that first chapter in Ephesians is the spiritual blessings, the blessings that come from the Spirit um, in our lives. So we've already, we've already, we're already indwelt by the Spirit, so it can't mean that. Because he's commanding us to be filled. All right? uh, it's not spiritual intoxication. Okay? Spiritual intoxication. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul's not commanding us here to be, uh, quote-unquote, like intoxicated by the Spirit. Uh, like, you know, we're intoxicated by alcohol, so we're not to be intoxicated by alcohol, but instead of being intoxicated by the Spirit. You know, that's not the idea of the contrast. We're not to, to lose self-control and, and have the Spirit sort of whip us up into some sanctified frenzy. That's not, that's not what Paul's commanding here. How do we know that? Well, in Galatians 5, Paul explicitly tells us that self-control is one of the beautiful fruits of the Spirit. So, it's something the Spirit produces, self-control is. It's evidence that the Spirit's in your church and in your life when you're growing in self-control. So, we don't, we don't want to have uh, this wrong view of the Spirit filling as some sort of like heightened, sanctified frenzy or... Just essentially the loss of self-control and the spirit take control idea. And third, it's not spiritual elevation. Spiritual elevation. What do I mean by that? Paul's not commanding us here to have an experience that, that instantly elevates us to some kind of higher living or higher life status. You'll likely hear this view a lot at Liberty. And it, it takes so many various forms, so we're not going to chase them all down, but sometimes it gets presented as having some climactic experience of surrender, where the Spirit sort of takes control of you, and then He skyrockets you up a few levels in sanctification. You know, you just, you're in the worship time, you're singing, and it just the Spirit fills you, and then pew, now you're, you're more sanctified than you were before because the Spirit filled you. Or you, you sort of let go and let him do the work, or the popular phrase is you let go and let God, um, Jesus take the wheel kind of thing. Um, <laughs> really bad. He's already got the wheel, by the way. 
Um, <laughs> so as we've seen in, in our study, growth is definitely empowered by the Spirit. We're not saying that it's not empowered by the Spirit, okay? Growth is empowered by the Spirit. But it's empowerment for work on our part. It empowers us to work, to work at it. It's progressive, it's gradual, and it's often painful. So, Paul's not saying that this filling is some kind of automatic or instantaneous spiritual elevation that would sort of cut against his view of sanctification, Paul's own view of growth. And if you want a good resource that's really small on this, if you kind of come from this background or it's, it's kind of in the drinking water you know, around you at Liberty or whatever, um, there's a book called No Quick Fix. No Quick Fix. And it's by Andy Nacelli. And he just, he talks through kind of the, where this higher life theology came from, what it is, why it's harmful. Um, and it's so good. Uh, it's one of the shortest, best treatments on this issue. And you'll, as you read through it, you'll, you'll be like, wow, I, I heard that growing up. Or wow, that's, I used to say that. Or I've thought about that. I've thought that way before. Um, it's really, it's really helpful. Because we're, um, especially in our Christian culture, we've been, we've been affected by, uh, by this sort of Keswick theology that this has been born out of. So, Paul's not saying that, okay? Paul's not, he's not saying that, uh, he's not talking about spiritual elevation whenever he is using this idea of spirit feeling. So, what is he saying? Right? What, what is going on? Well, let's make a few observations based on the context of this command, and then, so you, just disclaimer, hang with me. All right, we're going to put it all together when I'm done, and I, I hope it'll make sense to you. All right, first, I want you to notice the corporate context of these commands. Okay, so we're in a section in Ephesians where he's giving commands to the church, this local church in Ephesus, to all of them. There's not this like highly individualistic uh, context here. Like you and the Spirit by yourself. It's, it's church, corporate, corporate gathering. And, and just notice in verse 19, addressing one another, okay? And if you go down to verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's this, there's this corporate setting to these commands. Um, second, so Building, building up here, okay? Second, Paul's already given us some indicators of what he means by this language of filling or fullness in the letter of Ephesians. So, keep your finger in Ephesians 5 and turn back with me a page to Ephesians 1. Look with me in Ephesians 1.23. We're, we're talking the same verbiage that we see in this text. In Ephesians 5 is permeated through the letter, Okay? Ephesians 1.23, the church is described as Christ's body, look in, look in verse 23, Christ's body, which is the, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You hear the language of fullness there? The, the body, where Christ's body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So what does that mean? It's been a long time since we covered Ephesians 1. What does that mean? It means that we, in some sense, okay, we extend the very presence of Christ on earth as the church. We are his fullness as his body. 
He's the head, we're the body, and we extend his presence, so to speak. His the manifestation of his presence is where I'm going with this. But we extend that, we display that on earth through the church. So we are his, we are his fullness. So how did that happen? Right? How did that happen? Paul told us, chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, right out of the gate, that he, Christ raised us up from the dead. He unified us together in Christ, making us into this, he changes the metaphor a bit, but making us into this end-time temple. Okay, look with me in, in chapter 2. And it's connected. The theme is connected. So then, he says, after this redemptive work that God's done, this unification of Jew and Gentile, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is chapter 2, verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, key in, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this means as the church, okay, so first we are Christ's body extending his fullness. As the church, we are like hubs of God's glorious presence where his spirit resides. Local churches, in other words, make up his end-time temple that manifests his glory on earth. And if we were to, to look at the book of Acts, okay, if we were to pause here and go over there, in Acts 2, when the Spirit is given, it's reminiscent, the way Luke tells that story, is it's reminiscent of God filling His temple in 2 Kings. So again, the idea of a filling of something, a filling, in this case, of the temple, which we now are. So when the Spirit is given to the church, it's like a filling of God's temple with His glorious presence. So it's connected, my point is this temple imagery is connected to the fullness imagery. Make sense? Tracking? Give me something. Okay. If not, it's okay. We have time after this. I'll hammer it into you. Um, But then, okay, interestingly, so okay, if, if we are Christ's fullness, and this is happening in the temple, this new temple of the church and local churches throughout the earth, okay, if this is the case, interestingly, then in chapter 3, Paul prays for us that we would grow in the knowledge of Christ's love so that, he says in verse 19, we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Okay? Look in verse 19. Don't take my word for it. So Paul's praying that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right there in verse 19, chapter 3. So don't miss that. His prayer shows us something very important as we're piecing this together. His prayer shows us that as we grow, we reflect more and more the fullness of God in our church. It's connected to our growth and our understanding of God's love for us. And as a result, then, just like in the temple of old, as a result, chapter 3, verse 21 God is glorified in the church. Look, look down in chapter 3, verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that's worked within us, to him be the glory in the church. Notice how Paul draws that out. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So his point is this new temple that's characterized by his spirit. As that temple grows up in to reflect the character of God, 
that's, that's ultimately culminating in the glory of God on earth in and through the church. And just in case there's any doubt of what Paul is getting at when he uses his filling language, okay, he confirms this understanding of filling in chapter 4. And he tells us that the end goal of our equipping is that we attain, in verse 13, that we attain to mature manhood. That we attain, in other words, we grow up to maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. The fullness is the fullness of the full stature of Christ. Full maturity, full resemblance of the Son of God. And later, like we've seen, even in this semester, Paul is going to echo the same idea by telling us to imitate God. Right? Like, take on His character. Imitate Him as beloved children. We learn to love like Christ has loved us in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So, it's a lot of data. Let me synthesize it for you. Okay? Up to this point in the letter, where we're at with the Spirit-filling text, up to this point, Paul's told us two things about filling. First, is that we as the church, as his body, we are the fullness of Christ. In that we resemble him in the world. Like that's what we are. By identity. And second, the next thing he's told us is that we grow then in experiencing that fullness as we in practice actually come to resemble him. Clear as mud? Okay? We are the fullness in our identity. And we then realize that fullness as we come to resemble our Lord on earth. So let's apply that to this command in chapter 5. To be filled with or by the Spirit. I think what Paul is saying here is that we should allow the Spirit to influence us in that fullness he's been talking about. Or another way we could say it would be like this. All right? He's saying here that we should allow the Spirit to influence us in that fullness to to let the Spirit produce Christ's character in us as a church. I think that's all he's saying. (laughs) Let the Spirit, allow the Spirit, it's a passive command to be filled, so allow the Spirit to produce Christ's character in us as the church. And remember the context, okay? The contrast to these commands, right? It's worship. It has to do with our gatherings in the church, just like the pagan gatherings were characterized by drunkenness and orgies and all kinds of sexual things. We're to be characterized by the fullness of the Spirit. Paul desires that the Spirit is more, is more fully demonstrated, or he fills the church as she gathers together. So then, the next big question is how, right? How does this work? How does the church increase the Spirit's fullness among its members? Well, Paul's going to list out several ways. He's going to list out several ways this happens in the context of the corporate gathering. And I don't think Paul's comprehensive here, meaning I don't think Paul's going to list out every way this happens, because it happens in lots of ways that we resemble Christ, right? But I think he's keyed in on some things that should be happening in the church corporately as the the saints gather, 
that's totally set it apart from the way that the, the, the culture is, when, what happens when they gather, okay? So these ways are really insightful, and I had to think about them a lot, because there's some things I didn't quite understand. Uh, surprise, surprise, I'm learning along with you guys, all right? So a couple ways, he says, initially by reverberating the truth to one another, Okay? So how do we, how do we, how does the Spirit increase His fullness among us? By reverberating, as we reverberate the truth to each other. That's one of the ways that we are, we allow the Spirit to more fully fill us. Look in verse 19. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, this is very interesting. Paul says the first way that we experience more of the Spirit's fullness is as we speak to each other with Old Testament psalms, with Christian hymns, and with spiritual psalms. He didn't say sing to each other, at least not yet. He said speak to each other. So I'm like, what does this look like? You know, first century church. Like, what, what is Paul envisioning here? Like, what, what did these gatherings entail. Uh, I found it interesting that he didn't start off right out of the bat with saying, sing to each other in these things, but speak. So what does he have in mind? Well, I think we've got to remember that for most of church history, God's people haven't had personal copies of his word. It didn't happen. Like that was, came as a result and a later result of the printing press. So, songs and poems and lyrics Various kinds of rhyme and meter were very helpful for crystallizing and remembering truth. Many of the psalms were sung, and, 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 but even though they were sung, they could still recite those lyrics, I think. And they were, they were memorized and recited, and they, they, were, they were part of church life. And so I think it was a way of getting God's truth to dwell in them richly, right? So just for the sake of having fun, if you flip over to Colossians, um, you'll see this same idea in almost the exact same context in Colossians 3. Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I think the idea that, that Paul is getting at here in our context is that it's this, this speaking that songs to each other is a way of getting God's truth to do on them richly. Now, I'm, I don't know what this looked like in, in the corporate gathering, um, but at a minimum, I'm sure that the conversations of these believers were full of reminding one another of the truth. I think that's just what the essence of this statement is. The truth reverberated in and among them, and they counteracted lies as they, as they rehearsed God's word through the lyrics of these songs. It's a way to, for them to keep it in mind. And then outside of the churches, they were fellowshipping together. Um, they spoke the truth to one another through these the lyrics of these songs. So let me just give you one example of this from church history. One of my all-time favorite pastors was John Newton. Is John Newton. Yes, he's dead. But he pastored a little parish in the, the town of Olney. And as he got to know his, his, his sheep, as he visited the people of his congregation, yeah, they, they all worked in the mill. Most of them did. And they worked long days. 
And he was grieved to hear them sort of passing the time, speaking these vulgar rhymes back and forth during the day. It's kind of how it's like they're doing their thing, and they're just kind of chanting them back and forth, and it's just sort of their cultural, I guess, equivalent of nursery rhymes. But everybody knew it, and they just kind of did it together. And, but it was just like really not helpful for uh, their growth, obviously. They did it to pass the time as they worked, but it was dishonoring to Christ. So this is one of the reasons, among many, that he's my hero. Every week before he preached his sermon, he wrote like essentially a hymn a week for his people. He would write out a lengthy poem. He would have it available for his people to memorize and to rehearse so that they could work on it while they were working in the mill. So they quite literally didn't have music. They would literally speak hymns to one another um, in, their, in their context. And I just think that's awesome. I think it's a practical example of, of how the church can speak hymns to one another, you know, memorize these things uh, maybe more efficiently. So, as we learn more of God's truth through the Psalms and our songs and hymns, and we reverberate that to each other, Paul says that the Spirit dwells among us in increasing fullness as his truth reverberates. But it doesn't stop at speaking. Paul also says that this happens by singing from the heart to the Lord. Look again in verse 19. He says, singing, middle of this verse, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing by, essentially be filled with the Spirit by singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So I think what's going on here is these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that he was talking about take root in our hearts and it comes out of our mouths in joyful praise to the Lord. So it, 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 as we meditate on these things, as we speak them to one another, they, they end up taking root and affecting us at the most fundamental level. So that's, I think that's what Paul's getting at here when he says you, you make melody to the Lord in your heart or in our heart. I think the idea here is that truth in these lyrics has impacted us in our innermost person, the heart. Truth has shaped our desires, our convictions, and our will. We become radically convinced of what God's done for us in Christ, how loved we are by Him, how wise He is in all His dealings with us, how sovereign He is in and through our trials, and we can't help but praise Him in song. The very lyrics that we meditate on, okay, first, first point, the very lyrics we meditate on and the, that we imbibe, they help us to give vent or to give expression to what we feel in our hearts. I think that's how this is working. So think about this, guys. We, we naturally praise what we value, don't we? We praise what we esteem highly. You don't have to work at that, you just do it. Why do you think we... we Human beings write so many love songs because we esteem the other highly. So when Christ is precious to us, when we believe the truth, we will praise Him. We will sing about Him. And as we sing to Him from sincere hearts, from the very depths of who we are, He is so pleased. We're singing to the Lord, is what Paul says right here. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's to our Savior. 
Lord is the title for Christ in this passage. To your Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and a huge, and I mean huge implication out of all this that's really obvious, that it really matters what we sing. Right? The content matters. It must be truthful and clear. It must be thoroughly biblical. It can't be hazy and open to lots of different interpretations. Because the lyrics will live on in our minds. Lyrics shape the way we think about God. They shape the way we think about everything else, too. So in the same way that we guard our pulpits, we should guard our music. There's also a third way that Paul says that we allow the Spirit to fill the church. And that's by offering gratitude. Verse 20. Offering consistent and comprehensive gratitude. Look in verse 20. He says we would be filled with the Spirit giving th- by giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we allow the Spirit to fill our church by offering consistent and comprehensive gratitude. This is very closely related to our singing, obviously. Um, and it often takes place in our singing. Uh, we thank God uh, in Christ, what he's, what he's done for us. Um, several weeks ago, we spent a lot of time on gratitude, so I'm not going to do that here, you know, talking about what it is, how to cultivate it, all those things. You can go back and, and review that. If you don't know where that is, I can give you uh, that. All I want you to notice here is, is how Paul says our thanksgiving should be consistent. Okay? He says always giving thanks should be consistent. And it should be comprehensive. So we should give thanks for all things. So we should be, in other words, consistently thankful people. None of us lives up to that perfectly. I get that. But we, we, always, we always have an abiding spring of gratitude available to us in Christ. Like that never runs dry. Like it's always there. No matter what happens here on earth, our eternal inheritance... Our destiny, it never changes. Like, like Rich was saying earlier. Sometimes when, when life's particularly tough, Mary and I will kind of have a little like holy huddle moment, you know? And like, all right. And we'll say, the big things haven't changed. Right? Yeah, big things haven't changed. Yeah. Depending on who's down, the other person's saying it, right? So, okay, big things haven't changed. And it's, it's just our shorthand way of reminding each other that we have hope in life and hope in death. And if we have hope, we always have a reason to be joyfully thankful. So even our sufferings end up breaking in blessing on our head in the end, the scriptures say. God works all things for good to us, for us. So our sufferings are going are gonna to break. Those dark clouds are going to break in rain. It's going to give life in the end. And that's why not only are we consistently thankful, but we're comprehensively thankful. We're thankful for all things. Even the, even the trial. So, as we are thankful, the Spirit manifests this incredible glory of His fullness in our body. Have you ever spoken with someone who is profoundly thankful for what the Lord has done for them? And it seems to permeate their lives, even in hardship. Like it's just like part of them. And it's incredible. And when we suffer and yet we remain grateful 
we're demonstrating this fullness to a watching world. Imagine if everybody in our church had this mentality. We're demonstrating how otherworldly we are to people who have no idea. We're demonstrating that we belong to the new creation and actually what the new creation is like with thankful people. <laughs> we, have a, we have a great king. So, let's help each other cultivate those, those thankful attitudes right here in Boundless and manifest the fullness of the Spirit even more as we're, as we're thankful. We need reminding. We need help. We need to help each other do that. Finally, the last way, uh, according to this text, that we allow the Spirit to fill His church is by submitting to each other, or in this case, by living submissive lives. Verse 21, by living submissive lives. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, submitting, by submitting, verse 21, to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, disclaimer, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger, um, because... This is really where our text picks up for next time, next semester. But this verse is actually, it's, it's, it's a pivot, okay? It's a pivot to the next section of the letter where he talks about relationships in the household. So that's where he's going. How wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters relate to each other. And next semester we're going to delve into these ideas. But here, just suffice it to say that the final way that the Spirit fills his church is by producing a congregation that's humbly and joyfully submissive in the domains of their relationships. So, the Spirit fills His church by producing a congregation that's humbly and joyfully submissive in the context of their relationship. And how this submission plays out is seen in the rest of chapter 5 in the household and essentially like household and small business. Kind of both of those are kind of together in the Greco-Roman world. You ran your business out of your house. So you, you sort of did that all in all in one under one roof, so to speak. And so it's Paul's instructions to families that we see like who submits to who and how that works. So he's not saying that we all submit to each other reciprocally. Like that would make no sense. It's like the idea of like killing one another. That means some people are killing other people. That doesn't mean there's like mutual killing happening at the exact same time. So this submitting to one another, Paul, in the context, he shows us what that looks like as he goes down the line. And it's not that husbands or parents or masters get off easy. Uh, there's definitely commands on that side too. But what he's saying here is that, that the church should reflect the submissive lives that are, and, and in particular the household should, should live in the fear of Christ in, in whatever your relationship is, whatever your role is in that household, you live in the fear of Christ to execute that out. And how the household lives, because the households make up the church, right? How those live and operate are directly connected to how the Spirit fills the church. Um, so, in other words, what Paul is saying is that the Spirit's fullness happens in a church as the realities of the gospel permeate down to the most basic relationships in our church, the individual family units. Our homes should reflect God's intended design. Wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands should lay down their lives for their wives. Children should obey their parents, and parents should nurture and train the kids. Slaves should submit to their masters. Masters should treat their slaves kindly and fairly. That's all the household. 
And all of this is done, Paul says, in the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. That means that we revere Christ, and as we we function in the God-ordained roles that He's given us in the family, we do so in ultimate obedience to Him in the fear of Christ there. That's what that means. Not ultimately wives to husbands. Husbands aren't the ultimate. Christ is ultimate. As I love my wife, I'm loving her as Christ loved the church. So Christ is ultimate. Do it in the fear of Him. Parents, masters, you know, you're, you're, they're, they're not the ultimate ones that children, are, that children are giving their obedience to or slaves are giving their obedience to. They're giving them to, their obedience to Christ. Ultimately, they're doing it in the fear of Him. We're going to unpack all of that next semester. I think it'll be so helpful for you no matter what stage of life that you're in. Uh, even if you think I'm going to be single till I die, it's still going to be helpful for you, okay? Um, to understand God's intentions uh, for the family and the household and work and all those kinds of things. So we're going we're gonna to look at all that next week. But my point here, I just want to make, like, submissive lives in the most mundane relationships in the church are connected to the glory of God in the world as His Spirit dwells in the church. So, what a way to end this section um, that we've been in with a focus on the Spirit filling up the church like God's glory filled the temple in the Old Testament. And He does it, like we've seen, as the truth reverberates among us, as we sing from our hearts, as we're thankful, and as we're submitted to each other in the most minute little relationships here in the church. So, if you have questions, like always, please um, come chat. And uh, if I haven't met you, uh, Find me. Introduce yourself to me. I'd love to love to meet you and um, find out a little bit more about you. But uh, we will have Boundless next week. Just reiterate that. We are going to have Boundless next week. We're, we're taking Thanksgiving Day off for obvious reasons. Rich is teaching next week, so don't want to miss that. Um, and if you want to sign up for the Bazaar, the Bazaar, Fall Festival, uh, please see Christy afterwards. And just to give you an idea, because this is not just like slots we need filled for some like, meh, reason. TCS is one of the ministries here, the Christian school. And we interact with lots of people in the community that are unbelievers in and through that school. So part of the reason that we're doing this is a fundraiser for the pre-K program. So that's, that's why we're doing it, is to, to raise money for them. But it's also for our church to meet people that live right around here that are coming to this event and to just make connections with them, talk to them, understand a little bit more about them and just try to make relationships with them for gospel purposes. So um, it's a great opportunity for that. So your service is directly connected to the broader mission of the church. So I just want you to see that and make that connection. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, work, work it in us. Thank you, Lord, for how you've done that. In and through this book, thank you that Paul is still serving a foundational role as an apostle. Um, as we meditate on his words, uh, these new covenant documents that you've given to us. So thank you um, for them, and I pray your church right here in Balance will be encouraged. And we pray in Jesus' name.